This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Tonight we are joined by a very special guest speaker, historian Tom Segev, who has traveled more than 7,500 miles across the globe to be with us here tonight. As an historian, Tom is known for his probing questions into the prevailing assumptions of Israel's official history. His work draws on untapped archives, personal diaries, and declassified documents that deconstruct and illuminate the complex and uneasy relationship between Israel and the Holocaust. You'll hear more about and from Tom shortly, but first I would like to acknowledge a few other people and tell you a little bit more about the Holocaust Living History Workshop. I'd like to extend a special and very grateful thanks to Bill and Michelle Larac and Jeffrey and Marcy Krinsk, the generous sponsors of this evening's program. I also want to recognize Hillel of San Diego for their support. While the library and the Jewish Studies program are very much continued, uh, committed to continuing this compelling speaker series, we need the support of friends like the Laraks, like the Krensks, like Hillel, to continue bringing in speakers like Tom Segev. So please contact us if you'd like to learn more about how you can help. Over the years, the Holocaust Living History Workshop has grown to become one of the university's most captivating community outreach initiatives. Now in its eighth year of programming, the workshop seeks to preserve the memories of the survivors of and the witnesses to the Holocaust by bringing in scholars, historians, journalists, and others who can share compelling personal narratives, shed light on new research, and stimulate thoughtful discussions about current events that underscore, more than 70 years later, the continued relevance of the Holocaust in world history. The workshop also plays a critical role in linking our students, teachers, area Holocaust survivors and their families, and members of the community through the USC Shoah Foundation Visual History Archive the world's largest collection of testimonies by Holocaust survivors. Before settling at USC, this archive was developed under the auspices of filmmaker Steven Spielberg to document the histories of Holocaust survivors for his film, Schindler's List. The UC San Diego Library is one of a handful of libraries and one of only two on the entire West Coast that provides access to this tremendous resource through our ongoing licensing arrangement with the Shoah Foundation. And now to our distinguished speaker, Tom Segev. Born in Jerusalem to parents who fled Nazi Germany, Tom earned his BA in History and Political Science from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and his PhD in History from Boston University. Besides serving as a visiting professor at UC Berkeley, Rutgers University, and Northeastern University, he has contributed a weekly column to the prominent Israeli newspaper Haaretz. Segev's international fame as an historian is based on his pathbreaking works on Israeli history, 
works that have been translated into 14 languages. One of Israel's so-called new historians, Tom has helped to challenge some of the country's founding myths. His book, The Seventh Million, The Israelis and the Holocaust, published in 1991, was one of the first works to demonstrate the decisive impact of the Shoah on Israel's identity, ideology, and politics. His study of the pre-state period, titled One Palestine Complete, Jews and Arabs under the British Mandate, published in 2000, won the National Jewish Book Award and was named the New York Times Editor's Choice Best Book. Tom's other noted works include 1949, The First Israelis, 1967, Israel, The War, and the Year that Transformed the Middle East, and most recently, Simon Wiesenthal, The Life and Legend. He is currently at work on a biography of David Ben-Gurion. It is a pleasure and a privilege to present Tom Segev in the concluding Holocaust Living History Workshop of the current academic year. Please join me in welcoming him to the paragraph. Thank you very much. Thank you. Those of you who follow the news from Israel may be aware that the Israeli Ministry of Education has recently introduced a Holocaust program for nursery schools. In preparing our meeting tonight, I asked my granddaughter to brief me on the program. <laughs> Leah is four years old, and so she's a good source. <laughs> Exposing little children to the Holocaust is part of what it means to live with the Holocaust on an everyday basis. The Holocaust is part of our everyday life, and it is a major element of our collective identity, and um, it is constantly guiding us in the choice between basic values. There is, in fact, not a single day without some reference to the Holocaust in one of the Israeli media. And recently, you may have, um, you, you may have followed the heated discussion about the proper lessons of the Holocaust, which eventually led to a major government crisis. This has not always been the case. In fact, there was a time when the Holocaust was a complete taboo in Israel. Parents wouldn't talk to their children about it, and children wouldn't dare to ask. So let me take you first to the beginnings of life with the Holocaust. The first reports about the extermination of the Jews arrived in Palestine more or less in real time. Part of the information was published in the newspapers. Somewhere in the internal pages of one of the papers, you can find that the Nazis are pushing Jews into gas chambers, and um, this happens next to a little village in Poland called Treblinka. It was in the paper. But the news about the extermination of the Jews very rarely 
hit the main headlines. The two major stories which interested the Hebrew press in Palestine at uh, that time were obviously the, the, the news from, uh, the, from the front in the, the war, World War War, and uh, the future of Palestine. The story about the extermination of the Jews was treated like a local angle of the real big story. Uh, the assumption was that the only way to save Jews was by defeating Nazi Germany in the war. When you look at the newspapers today, you get a strange, awkward feeling. In fact, after the war, newspaper editors were asked about it, and they said that they were unable to internalize the magnitude of the uh, horrors. They were unable to verify it. They felt a responsibility not to cause unnecessary panic. And perhaps they also felt that the public is not really interested in uh, that story. By the way, the Hebrew press in Palestine was not different from newspapers in other countries who all missed that story, including the New York Times. But the newspapers in Palestine did not properly report the extermination uh, of the Jews, also because the Zionist movement was, in fact, unable to do much for those Jews. So this was, gave them an awkward feeling. And um, By the way, almost everything I'm saying tonight um, can make a book. Almost every sentence has made books. There are lots of books. Your library is full with books about uh, other things. Um, what could have been done for the Jews uh, during uh, the Holocaust. Zionism, as you know, predicted uh, the Holocaust, but in the moment of truth, it was uh, quite unable to do much for, uh, for the Jews. Here and there, there may have been missed opportunities. What's more troubling in, in, with, with an historical view is the fact that most leaders of the Zionist movement were preoccupied with the events in Palestine rather than with the events uh, in Europe. Already during the war, the um, extermination of the Jews, the Holocaust, was treated like something that belongs in the past, some piece of, of history. Most victims of the Holocaust were still alive when leaders of the Zionist movement already began to accuse each other for not having done enough to save them. Most victims of the Holocaust were still alive when people in Palestine began to plan a memorial campus and they also had a name for it, Yad Vashem. This was in 1942. And most victims of the Holocaust were still alive when jurists began to explore the possibilities of demanding compensation from Germany after the war. And of course, everybody was preoccupied with planning the future state of Israel. As you said, I'm working now on a biography of 
uh, David Ben-Gurion. Ben-Gurion spoke a great deal about uh, the need to save the Jews, but he always meant saving the survivors after the war. He always talked about saving Jews after the war. He was also preoccupied with the future of Palestine. In other words, he regarded the surviving Jews as the main power, the soldiers that would uh, populate uh, the future state of Israel. The Zionist dream, as you know, was a European dream, but the Jews in Europe were gone now. And so the only Jews who uh, were potentially regarded as uh, the future population of Palestine were Jews living in, other, in, in Arab countries. And uh, when the magnitude of the Holocaust became clear, the fact that six million European Jews were gone, most of them uh, European Jews, were gone, Ben-Gurion understood that it's time to discover the Jews who live in uh, Arab countries And he did so with great apprehension. He did so with great disappointment because that was not the country he saw in his dream. He understood that the future state of Israel will not be based on people who grew up in uh, Europe, not people who will bring to the new state European culture, European values, and... um, he also feared that these people will not be able to fulfill the tasks. For example, he feared that um, people from Arab countries who will be uh, settled in some new areas along the border, they will escape the moment they hear the first uh, shot because they are not like us, people from Europe who are heroic and know what should be done. So, uh, on the basis of what he wrote about the Holocaust and what he said about the Holocaust, I've concluded that for Ben-Gurion, the Holocaust was not first and foremost a crime against humanity, not first and foremost a crime against the Jewish people, but first and foremost a crime against Zionism and specifically a crime against the State of Israel which was in the making. With which uh, we arrive at the 1950s and to the period of the great silence, the guilt feelings, and the shame. In this connection, I've often thought about a woman I know next to nothing about. Her name was Rivka Waxman, and she was one of the first Israelis, a new immigrant in, uh, from, from Poland. It's been almost 25 years since I first heard that story, and although it had been repeated very often in various languages, nobody came up to me and gave me any information uh, about Rivka Waxman, and so I'm repeating the story the, the, the way I, I uh, first read it. It happened on one of the first days uh, of 1949, a few months after the uh, um, independence of Israel was declared. 
The first Arab-Israeli was drawing to a close. It was one of Rivka Waxman's first days in Israel. She went out shopping on Herzl Street in Haifa. And uh, suddenly she noticed a soldier who emerged from a jeep and approached the ticket office of a nearby movie theater. And Rivka Waxman uh, cries out, Chaim! And the uh, soldier stops, and for the next few seconds they stare each other in disbelief. The soldier was Chaim, and Rivka Waxman was his mother. They uh, had not seen each other for um, eight years or so. Last time she saw him, he was 14. She thought that he perished in the Holocaust, and he also thought that he will never see his mother again. A popular afternoon newspaper published the story on the same day. Indeed, it had symbolic value, and this is why I keep uh, repeating it also to you, because thousands of people, young and old, had been torn from their loved ones during the Nazi occupation of Europe and never knew what had become of them in the forests, in the camps, uh, in the ghettos, in the deportations. And in Israel, they found each other purely by chance, by word of mouth, uh, by ads in the newspapers, and also uh, thanks to a heart-rending radio program called Who Recognizes, Who Knows, Mi Makir, Mi And I'm now talking to you about my own childhood um, in, in Israel, and I, I can tell you that among the voices of my childhood, I can still hear uh, those uh, names of, of people uh, looking for for relatives relatives coming coming over the radio, um, Arye Leibush, which uh, uh, what's his name Leibush, Arye Leibush Rabinovich, uh, now in Kibbutz Hazorea, formerly from Lodge, is looking for his brother Aaron. Um, hopefully, somewhere uh, they will find each other. All were recent immigrants on the threshold of uh, a new life. I guess that life after the Holocaust was not easy for Rivka Waxman. It was not easy anywhere, but it was particularly difficult in Israel. Many of the survivors felt guilty for having stayed alive. And more than once, they were required to feel ashamed the assumption was that if somebody survived the Holocaust, he must have survived on the expense of somebody else. And therefore, by definition, a Holocaust survivor must have been bad and evil. Very, very common view, by the way, expressed in so many words by Ben-Gurion, among, among other people. They were referred to as human debris, Avakadam in, in Hebrew, again by, by Ben-Gurion. Again and again, they were asked, why did you not defend yourself? Assuming that we, proud, heroic Israelis, would have not let the Nazis uh, do these things to us. Everybody of us, as you know, is a Paul Newman. So um, why did you go to, like, like, like sheep to the, to, the, to the slaughterhouse? 
The survivors radiated weakness, which Israelis wanted to get rid of. And there is a famous story written by Aaron Appelfeld, the novelist, about a boy who survives the Holocaust and uh, gets to be in Palestine. He's sent to a kibbutz, and um, he remains pale. He comes pale, and he remains pale. And so the other kids in the kibbutz beat him up. And he said, I'm trying, I'm trying to get a suntet. I'm sitting in the sun all day, but I can't. And so his, his paleness reminds them of the Holocaust. He's actually bringing the Holocaust with it to the kibbutz. And that's what they want to get rid of. And so they, 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 they take revenge at him because he, uh, he, he remains pale. You may also know that a very popular uh, reference, slang reference in, in Israel for Holocaust survivors was Sabon, based on the erroneous assumption that the Nazis um, manufactured soap from the bodies of, of their victims. So this was a difficult time for, for uh, survivors. They were also constantly asked, why didn't you come earlier? Why did you stay why, why didn't you see the Zionist light as we did? In other words, accusing the victims for uh, being part of what happened to uh, the Jewish people. And nobody wanted to hear the stories. And very often, their stories were not believed. This is a famous story of another boy who comes to Palestine and tells his relatives that in the camp he was whipped by the camp commander 80 times and his relatives don't believe him they say if you were whipped 80 times you would be dead so you are making it up and this he later exp um, exp um, described as the 81st blow this is a very common uh, expression in, in, uh, in Holocaust uh, memory the 81st blow the blow that my relatives didn't believe me. Now we are talking about uh, Israelis who very often felt guilty themselves because uh, the Zionist movement was not able to do more for uh, rescue because they didn't really care. And the survivors very often told them, look at your newspapers. They are stories about uh, opera performances. They are stories about uh, fashion shows. They are uh, stories about football games. There is, in fact, one uh, item in a newspaper printed about, about um, a football game, printed above a story about uh, the fate of Jews in some Polish town. Um, so we have a very, very painful conflict here. There was the, the personal level also of, of veteran Israelis. They, they, they left the town uh, in Poland or somewhere, leaving their parents behind. Naturally, one would think, well, m maybe if I stayed in Poland, I would have been able to do something for my parents. Uh, now my parents uh, are gone. And then there also was the everyday level I mean, how do you talk to, first of all, how do you live in, in, in a country after Auschwitz? How do you build your life after Auschwitz? But there was also the problem of life with those people. How do you live with a person 
who carries a blue number on, on his arm. How do you work with them? How do you go on the bus with them? How do you go to the movies with them? How do you fell, fall in love with them? How do you accept their children in school? What do you do with, with, with these people? How do you, how you relate to them? So I think that never before did any society um, face a more difficult confrontation with what we call the other than, than uh, the, the Israeli society in those days. And um, this is when everybody agreed that the best thing to do is uh, not to talk about it. And that's when the period of uh, great silence uh, was born. The Holocaust was hardly uh, mentioned. We did learn something about the Holocaust in school. Um, when I grew up in, in, in the late 1950s, the Holocaust was depicted mainly in form of Nazi sadism. Very little was ever said about the political and uh, ideological background that made Nazism possible. We were given to read uh, books by a writer called Katsetnik, the pseudonym. Of, of that writer was Katsetnik, and I later uh, had to realize, unfortunately, that much of it was uh, pornographic. Katsetnik described acts of uh, sexual assault, acts of cannibalism, and um, when he later appeared as a witness in the Eichmann trial, he described the Holocaust as something that happened on another planet. In other words, outside the realms of history, outside the limits of uh, responsibility uh, of, 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 of human beings and um, beyond any, any, any political responsibility uh, particularly. Now, we were told a great deal about the heroism of the ghetto fighters. And we were also told a great deal about Jewish collaborators with the Nazis. The first were meant to make us proud. The later were meant to show us that um, Holocaust survivors are, are, are evil people. And this went on uh, about until 1960 and uh, changed as a result of the capture of Adolf Eichmann, the uh, Nazi official who dealt mainly with the organization of uh, the extermination. He was abducted by Israeli agents in Argentina, brought to Jerusalem, stood trial. And um, for many Israelis, uh, this was the beginning of victory. We began to feel that we are actually defeating the Nazis. We are punishing the Nazis. We are revenging. And the survivors, for the first time, found themselves in a position where the country was interested in their story. The country needed their story, needed them as witnesses. And uh, looking back, the trial really became the beginning of therapy for an entire country. And um, what we did was uh, exactly what therapists uh, suggest, uh, talk about it. So we began to talk about the Holocaust, we began to be interested in, in the Holocaust. And at this point, the big silence uh, cracked 
and I was broken. And the Holocaust became into what it is today, as I said, a very central element of our collective identity. You can show how this happened gradually on many spheres, but one, one of them uh, is when you follow the uh, development of a uh, school system. The Holocaust, uh, as, as the Holocaust was, was taught in, in schools, every year more hours were devoted uh, uh, to, to, to the Holocaust. And uh, today, as I said, uh, they already uh, teach Holocaust or talk about the Holocaust in, in uh, nursery schools. So here is what I learned from Leah, or rather from an email which her parents got from uh, telling them what Leah would expect on Holocaust Day. At 10 o'clock, we have the national siren. Whole country is paralyzed. Nothing. Everybody stands still. And this they will also do with the children. And then the children will be encouraged to talk about their uh, what they did during the Passover vacation, which precedes Holocaust Day. Many of them will have taken trips with their, with their parents, so they will be encouraged uh, to say how beautiful it was, because we have a very beautiful country, our country. And then they will be told that uh, not all children are so lucky to have a country, because they were bad people who prevented these children and their parents to come and live in Israel and uh, have such a beautiful country. But at least they fought back. They resisted. And they won. The victory, the evidence, is our country. That we have this beautiful country. This is our victory. So we won. And we stand still in memory of those children. By the way, in the email it says, should one of the children specifically ask what is a Nazi, we will tell them. We will tell them that Nazis are bad people who killed Jews. And the children will understand it because in Jewish history we have other bad people who, uh, who killed Jews like Pharaoh, They've just been talking about Pharaoh before the Passover vacation, so this uh, will make sense. Now, the collective Holocaust experience in Israel today is a childhood uh, experience. Obviously, it happened 70 years ago. There are about 200,000 Holocaust survivors living in Israel, and they experienced the Holocaust as children. Consequently, uh, the uh, um, Holocaust is very often depicted as a crime against children. You have many Holocaust memorials, children memorials, and, and, uh, and so on. Now, there are uh, polls taken in Israeli schools, and uh, it turns out that if you go to a high school today, eight out of ten high school kids will tell you, yes, I am a Holocaust survivor. Why are you a Holocaust survivor? You were born in Israel, your father was born in Israel, your grandfather was born in Morocco. What makes you a Holocaust survivor? I'm a Holocaust survivor because of the magnitude of the experience, which that's 
what makes us into Israelis. And there are about 20,000 Israeli high school kids who travel to Poland every year to uh, visit the German extermination camps in Poland. And uh, this is interesting, first of all, to me, because it's not a free trip, and it's very expensive. In other words, 20,000 Israeli families every year spend about uh, almost $2,000 for uh, their children to be to to see the camp to, to, and 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 if you have two children in school then it's quite a lot of money so the commitment to to this identity i think this is uh, is, is 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 being uh, shown here the um, identification with the holocaust becomes deeper and stronger all the time it uh, now includes also as I said, people who originally come from Arab countries or their ancestors come from, from Arab countries. It includes Arabs, Israeli Arabs. And it includes um, ultra-Orthodox Haredim, uh, whom, who, as you know, have a problem with God and, and the Holocaust, but they have also become in recent years part of that same national um, um, memory and, and part of identity. And now we get to the more sensitive part of the story. The Eichmann trial laid down the foundation for Israel's official Holocaust memory. Its main contention was that the extermination of the Jews was a unique crime unlike anything that ever happened before in history. The uniqueness of the Holocaust was to add force, indeed to dramatize the um, separate identity of the Jews as a nation in accordance with the Zionist ideology, which as you know is the existential ideology of Israel. In fact, Israel regards itself as the historical, indeed, the moral answer to the Holocaust. David Ben-Gurion stated as early as 1946 that the establishment of Israel would constitute proper compensation for the destruction of uh, European Jews. It also states as much in the Israeli Declaration of Independence. This is also the purpose of encouraging the international use of the Hebrew word Shoah, which really makes no sense. Shoah is a Hebrew word. Most of the Holocaust survivors, uh, uh, victims, did not speak Hebrew. But um, the need to monopolize the Holocaust uh, is, is, uh, is, is the reason why, especially in France and, and uh, in, in Germany also, uh, people are encouraged to say Shoah, the, uh, research, Holocaust research, and so on. And so Israel adopted a firm and almost uh, sacred Holocaust uh, doctrine, and any deviation from uh, this doctrine was, and to some extent uh, still is, considered to be in dangerous proximity to Holocaust denial. But as part of the uh, Israeli identity, 
the Holocaust has generated much moral and political discussion. We constantly argue about the proper Holocaust lessons. This argument often leads us to consider whom we are, whom we want to be, and uh, this is obviously a political discussion because uh, collective memory is always the result of some political um, uh, arguments and, 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 uh, and decisions. This past year, you probably saw more than once Prime Minister Netanyahu waving Auschwitz pictures and plans when he talks about uh, Iran, Iran being the new Hitler. Uh, not the first. There is not a single Arab leader who was not at one point or another compared to uh, Hitler. And Netanyahu, of course, also uh, made the historical revelation this year that Hitler got the idea to exterminate the Jews from Palestinian leader Haj Amin al-Husseini, the Mufti of Jerusalem. He's the one who, according to Netanyahu, told Hitler to kill the Jews, to which Hitler probably said, wow, why didn't I think about it myself? Um, and on the other hand of the political spectrum, these few weeks ago, uh, the deputy chief of staff, General Yair Golan, said in a Holocaust ceremony, mem memorial ceremony, that when he looks at the Israeli society today, he sees signs which remind him of the German society in the 1930s. This is a very, very um, controversial thing to say. And it was the beginning of the, pre of, of, of the present uh, government um, crisis. Those of you who uh, look at Haaretz, as I'm sure you all do, may have seen yesterday an article against uh, Major General Golan, written by Moshe Arens, who was uh, not only a Holocaust survivor, but himself Minister of Defense and, uh, and ambassador, Israeli ambassador in, in America. And he tried to prove that uh, it's wrong and it's wrong to say. And, and, um, but you, you, you see how, how I'm, it's, it's um, at any other time I would be able to give you these examples because, as I said, it's constantly, constantly there. Now, it is often very, very difficult to distinguish between genuine Holocaust sentiments and manipulated Holocaust arguments. In Israel, you find them all. And if you develop the ability to distinguish between them, then you hold in your hand a key to the understanding of the Israeli society. I would argue that genuine Holocaust sentiments led Israel's uh, decision to uh, bring into Israel in 1949 an enormous number of uh, people, uh, new, new, new immigration, the immigration of 1940. It makes really no sense to bring hundreds of thousands of people when you don't have housing for them and no hospitals and no school. But after the Holocaust, that's... You can't expect uh, anything else. And I think that genuine uh, Holocaust sentiments led to uh, the decision to develop Israel's uh, own nuclear uh, project. Because after the Holocaust, you really need to have everything available anywhere 
to, to define themselves. And genuine Holocaust sentiments also led to the Six-Day War, because on the eve of the Six-Day War, there was this genuine Holocaust fear in Israel. In other words, three of the major uh, decisions ever taken in Israel's history were taken under the influence uh, of the Holocaust. And perhaps we can add uh, a fourth decision, and that is the decision to run the state of Israel uh, as a democratic country. Although the Zionist movement had always followed practice of the, uh, parliamentary democracy, but still it's a decision. Do I, do, I, do I run Israel as a democracy or do I give it a different? And, and um, of course, uh, the meaning of, of democracy uh, is in itself a matter for political disagreement. The um, high school students who travel to Auschwitz are most often expected to recharge their patriotic batteries there. So at the entrance to the gas chambers, they will repeatedly hoist the Israeli flag and sing the uh, Israeli anthem. The lesson they are supposed to bring back from there is that uh, never, never again should anything like that happen. Uh, therefore, Israel must be as strong as possible, and therefore uh, we as heirs of the victims are also entitled to do everything and anything that it takes to preserve the existence and, and security of, of Israel. And all in all, basically a, a very pessimistic uh, message. Uh, the whole world is, is, uh, is against us and, and, and we are alone. Now, not surprisingly, for uh, a deeply divided uh, society like Israel, some schools also expect their students to recharge their humanistic batteries uh, in, in Auschwitz. And uh, uh, there is a uh, humanistic interpretation to, to, um, to the Holocaust. The Holocaust is a um, warning uh, against um, uh, racism and, and protection of, of human rights. The, those, those students will be taken, for example, to uh, a monument in memory of the Sinti and Roma, the, the, the gypsies, as, as we commonly uh, call them. At the National Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem, the, the Yad Vashem Museum, some reference, not um, very visible, but some reference is made to the Nazi euthanasia program and to the persecution of gays and uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. Some but very few genocide studies are today available in Israel. Again, only last week, the argument uh, broke out again in connection with an academic conference dealing with uh, the genocide to be uh, held in Jerusalem. Yad Vashem does not, look, uh, does not view it uh, with favor and is, in fact, not participating in, uh, in that conference. So this is something which uh, we also constantly argue about. What, what, what is the Holocaust and what is, what is genocide? Yehuda Bauer, Israel's most uh, senior uh, Holocaust scholar, has ventured to rethink the uh, uniqueness of the Holocaust in a book which uh, he wrote, the English title of which, in fact, uh, is Rethinking the Holocaust, while uh, the more prudent and less provocative Hebrew, Hebrew title is simply 
thoughts about the Holocaust. And uh, in a chapter called Comparing the Holocaust to Other Cases of Genocide, Bauer counts a number of Holocaust singularities, but in a final statement he describes the Holocaust as an extreme form of genocide. And this is as far as uh, one may go officially uh, in Israel. Outside Israel, the uh, subject has been taken further. One particularly interesting voice to me came from the late Simon Wiesenthal, largely known, as you know, as the Nazi hunter. Wiesenthal developed a wide humanistic um, and universal concept of uh, the Holocaust. He he regarded the extermination of the Jews as uh, an uh, inevitable result of um, crimes the Nazis had first committed against themselves, and um, he did not hesitate to compare the Holocaust to um, uh, other forms of genocide committed after World War II, such as in Cambodia and in Rwanda and uh, the Balkan Wars. I find that all too often the Holocaust is being used too loosely for the sake of ideological and political arguments. And this is true also in Israel on both sides of the political spectrum, right and left. And that is also my view concerning uh, any comparison between the Nazi, the, the, the Nazi occupation policies and Israel's uh, oppressive policy in the Palestinian territories. I do, however, respect Simon Wiesenthal's uh, approach to the universal and uh, humanistic lessons of the Holocaust. I think that young people in uniform anywhere in the world, including Israel, should be told that they may receive orders which they must not obey. These are manifestly illegal orders. And if they do obey such orders and commit war crimes, they might find themselves uh, in jail even half a century after the act. Uh, This notion is, of course, so crucial because, unfortunately, crimes of war have not uh, stopped after the Holocaust. The legal system in Israel obliges a soldier to to disobey a manifestly illegal order, including in combat situations. And uh, the soldier is expected to realize, to be decent enough to recognize that, uh, he rec- that the order he received is, is the, 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 the illegality of, of, uh, of the order. Obviously not an easy thing for an 18-year-old person to do. And this, to me, is the most significant lesson Israel learned from the Holocaust so far. There are others which uh, we still have to learn. And if you follow the news from Israel, you know that uh, we are going through a very difficult uh, period these days, so much so that uh, threats to democracy often seem uh, a graver danger than uh, threats from the outside. I regret to say that racism uh, is becoming widespread in Israel, very common and uh, often legitimate. And so uh, it needed an army general and deputy chief of staff of the army to warn us that we are drifting away from the original ideas of democracy and human rights. 
Even in the past, we have not always respected these ideas, but most Israelis have regarded them as the major, the, 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 as, as the most appropriate lessons of the Holocaust. Many of us still do, but not enough. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Every theme that we discuss in the classroom, everything we think in the, when we read the newspaper, all the conversations over dinner have all been <laughs> expressed in a, in, a, in a very concise and, uh, and fascinating manner. So um, we have time for questions, and I know we have a very well-informed audience here, so let's hear the questions. Bring them on. In 1943, late 1943, my father was among a very small group of Jewish teenagers who found their way out of Bulgaria and made their way to Palestine. Perhaps you know Kibbutz Urim. He did not expect to see his family again. In 1949, shortly after the state was declared independent, the Bulgarian communist regime allowed nearly all of the 48,000 surviving Jews to emigrate, many of them to Israel, inexplicably. Yet the Russian government did not allow the Jews of Russia to leave for many years. Can you explain why that occurred? Yes, first of all, uh, other communist countries also allowed uh, the Jews to leave, and they did so for two reasons. One, because they got permission from Russia to do so, and secondly, because uh, Israel and the Jewish people paid a lot of money for them. In fact, uh, the price for a Jew, the beginning price was $1,000, as Hungary demanded, and eventually they uh, let them go for $300 a head. Bulgaria, by the way, uh, counted two children as one adult for the same price of uh, $300. So that's, they, they needed the money and they wanted to get rid of the Jews. And uh, the Soviet Union had uh, ideological difficulties letting so many people, admitting that so many people are unhappy uh, as the Jews. Eventually, they, 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 that, that's the main reason why for so many years they did not let them go. It was only after they went through this ideological revolution that they said, okay, if they want to go, let them go but uh, not even money. Obviously, money was offered to, to Russia as well, but they did not let their own Jews go. So that's the difference. And, and if you look at the, at the uh, minutes of the, of the Israeli cabinet, which are now open for, for research, it's quite chilling how they are discussing how much are we willing to pay and how much do we risk if we bargain and uh, can we bargain with the Hungarians or not, but it's, uh, uh, they, they, they are really, um, you know, they are extracting too much money. It's not worth $1,000 per head. That's a terrible discussions, but eventually that's the way it was and, and, uh, in Bulgaria. Also, Bulgaria was the first country Ben Gurion visited during the whole, right after the Holocaust. Very important uh, historical visit for him. 
uh, the, the Jews of Bulgaria. We'll take two more questions. Shalom v'toda. Um, I wanted to know what's your opinion of uh, Jewish day schools in the United States teaching a very biased Zionist view of um, Israeli history and of Jewish history. And also on the same token, if you have any recommendations to my generation who now is you know, becoming very involved in elections in the United States, will become the generation that leads this country? And how would you recommend someone with an interest in really understanding Israel and its history to not only be a voice for American Jews, but to bridge that gap in understanding and also the difference of opinions? It all depends on your opinion. If you support the government of Israel, uh, then you know what to do. If you don't support the government of Israel, then you are in trouble because you have to convince everybody else to make a distinction between the government of Israel and the state of Israel. And that's a difficulty which many people in, in America have and perhaps uh, you as a, as, a, as a young person also to, uh, to, to make the distinction which is a very natural thing for you as an American. You can easily say, uh, I don't like this president, but that doesn't mean that I don't like America. But it's very difficult for many Americans to make the distinction, also because it takes a lot of thinking, a lot of responsibility, a lot of sophistication to say, I support Israel, I support the idea of Israel, but this is not the kind of policy I support. And to make the distinction between the policy and the country is something which uh, I wish I would, I would uh, find more. Uh, in in uh, in America, but uh, I very often find myself in a, in a situation where people um, don't quite understand uh, what it is I want to say. I told uh, in a meeting today how I once talked to an American audience and they bitterly complained about how anti-Israel CNN is. They kept saying CNN, CNN. They keep attacking Netanyahu all the time. And I said to them, if they attack Netanyahu, then they are pro-Israel. They're not anti-Israel. <laughs> but uh, it didn't work so well. So, uh. Okay. I see. It doesn't take us too long to wander into the present. Last yeah. question, Professor Grauber. Uh, I want to think back of your comments about your four-year-old granddaughter and the Holocaust education. It made me think that it seems that there's a big gap between Israeli scholarship, which is more sophisticated than ever on the Holocaust and thinking critical thoughts. They've even now translated Hannah Arendt's Eichmann in Jerusalem since 2000. So at the scholarship level, it seems very sophisticated. Yet it, it seems at the popular level, it's gotten more propagandistic, more simplistic than ever, and something that's becoming very unhelpful for the future of Israeli democracy. So do you think that's a fair statement of this gap? Yes, unfortunately, the most important uh, works on the Holocaust have not been written in Israel. Um, actually, the most important book that today exists has been written by a professor who left Israel, and that's uh, Shaul Friedlander, who spent many years at uh, UCLA. If you want to read only one book, I would tell you this is the book to read. So it's um, perhaps, um, again, it, it needs much more th thought and much more discussion, but uh, you, you can perhaps uh, uh, prove that uh, the atmosphere in Israel, the fact that the Holocaust is, is such a political issue and such an important element of the Israeli identity, 
uh, makes it impossible to produce worthwhile research. I think that uh, Israel's main contribution to Holocaust study uh, concerns specific places. So, yes, you have very good books about the ghetto here or the ghetto there. But, um, you know, the Holocaust as, a, as, a, as, a, as part of, of history is something which many Israelis have, have difficulty had had many many researchers in Israel had a difficulty uh, to do, and so um, I think that may be the answer. Okay, well, just a couple of words to sum up. Um, uh, it's been quite a day, and I'm very thrilled that uh, uh, Tom Segev has been with us. I've been wanting to hear this talk for. I don't know, 30 years. So for me, it's a great culmination. Oh, my God, why didn't you send me an email? <laughs> ah, there were no emails 30 years ago. That's probably why. <laughs> I was first given a copy of The Seventh Million when my husband and I were living on a kibbutz and we were in a search for a VCR to play um, movies for our for our infant son. And when I got to the house where we were staying, where the VCR was, as we'd escaped from the rigors of the kibbutz, my friend handed me a copy of The Seventh Million. And I had nothing to do with the VCR until I had read to the last page. Uh, so it's been it's been fascinating. I want to sum up by stressing the complexities of scholarship in the in the questions and in the answers. I think we heard again and again this paradox, which the gentleman over here I think expressed very well, which is sometimes the more we learn, the less we understand. Does that mean we should stop reading books and writing books and? trying to get the great synthesis and the small details and bring them into conjuncture, and then to use that work and our studies to illuminate the present, we can only keep trying. So thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.